If you were to see the Earth from space, you'd look down on a planet that was serene and peaceful. I mean, even the hurricanes would look beautiful. Scott Kelly, an astronaut and at one time the commander of the International Space Station, he said this once, we have a unique vantage point here aboard the International Space Station. As I look out the window, I see a very beautiful planet that seems very inviting and peaceful. Unfortunately, it is not. And that's, that's the case, isn't it? It's not as peaceful as it looks from way up high. The reality of our world is that there's unrest and turmoil and trouble and strife. I mean, think about the terrorism and the wars that are going on in our world. All around the world, there's something going on, some fight happening, some group being oppressed, death and destruction all around. But besides that, if you look at our experience, you look into, into our um, own homeland, which is relatively peaceful compared to some parts of the world, you find really horrible things happening. For instance, there was five members of the U.S. Armed Forces that were gunned down in Chattanooga, Tennessee a couple years ago. Um, Ten people were killed at the community college in Roseburg, Oregon. Forty-nine people were gunned down in a nightclub in Orlando, Florida, not to mention the um, people that were killed in Las Vegas and so many other places. In fact, I was looking online, and I found, uh, just look at um, gunshot school, and, and it's like today, like this very day, there's a dozen entries, things we don't even hear about because it's so common. Charleston, South Carolina, some worshipers went to a church thinking that they would have a nice midweek uh, prayer meeting, and what they ended up with was brutality and violence, and several individuals lost their lives. We wonder, how can this happen? How can this violence and lack of peace exist in our world? And when we look in the book of Revelation, we see that there's kind of a contradiction. John begins the book of Revelation wishing peace to the seven churches. Seven churches that among the descriptions of them are persecution and strife and challenge. In, in, the ni- in 19 of the books in the New Testament, it says at the very beginning, the author wishes the, the people who are reading the book peace. You know, and despite in, in our modern uh, enlightened minds, we'd like to think at least, you know, we've kind of accumulated all this knowledge from the world and, and, and we know lots and lots and lots of history. We know all that these wars and problems throughout what, the last many centuries, we're pretty familiar with all of that. And in in spite of our enlightened minds, our technological advancements, our understanding of history, we still have not come to a situation of peace. We live in a world that's teetering on the edge for, uh, I don't know how many years, 20-ish or 30 years or so, maybe more. We had a, a doctrine of mutual destruction. That's how peace was obtained. If you fire those weapons at us, we'll fire these weapons at you, and we'll both be destroyed. And since it's mutually assured, then we, neither of us will start the war. That, that's the, the way that we obtained peace. Some peace. That's not what peace is. And if you look inside, in your own personal experience, our modern world, with all its conveniences and its uh, nice smartphones and things like this, it, it affords us convenience but it also is the ball and chain that uh, means that our work goes with us everywhere. My pastor 
Uh, my lead pastor, Jeff, will uh, tell you that sometimes he gets an, a text from me at a time that would not normally be considered work hours. And I don't even think about it, really. I just think, oh, I need to tell Jeff something. And, and, and yet, that's, that's kind of the thing that ties us to, um, well, that keeps us from rest, from putting our, our work aside for some time. And there's so many other things, relationship problems. Uh, there, there's a long list of things that keep us from peace, financial stress. Uh, if you look in, in some places in the United States, suicide rates are really, 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 really high. Alaska, Montana, some other places. But um, in general, suicide rates are high. China has a really high suicide rate right now. Um, and, and some other Asian countries, but China specifically because of some policies that they've had in the many, last many years in uh, childbirth and the one-child policy and all of the, the social impacts that that's having. It's not a peaceful place in this world, whether it's the government or inside your own heart. Psalms 119, 165, though, gives us some contrast, some uh, kind of a, an opposite perspective and maybe a little bit of hope. It says great That word at the beginning is just nice. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Why do people who, have the, who love God's law, why do they have peace? Why is it that that's their experience and not the experience of others? I think it's a multitude of things, but for, for one reason, God designed us for peace. He did not design us for sin. And, and so when you get on God's wavelength and you're, you're talking the same language as God and you're kind of, you're living life in the same context as God, then, then you're doing what God intended. It's a lot easier to do what you're intended for than to do something that you're not. I like woodworking and I have a, a planer. Uh, do you know what a planer is? It's, it's got these blades There's, there's kind of a claw that pulls the wood in, and then it's got these blades that are perfectly level that, that shave off some of the wood on the top. Now, if, if those blades it, uh, are, are in contact with metal, they get damaged, and it's not good for those blades. They are not intended to shave metal. They like wood. They don't like metal. If you put a, a bunch of nails a piece of wood with a bunch of nails in it through that planer, that planer is not going to experience peace. And that's kind of what we're doing with our lives when we are not following God's law. We're doing what we weren't intended for, and we don't have peace. Revelation 14:12 adds this picture, and we're, we've talked about this verse a few times, but uh, this idea, here is the patience of the saints. There's something about Patience. Is it, is it easy to have patience when there's no peace in your heart? No, it's, it's anxiety when there's no peace. Patience is the result of peace. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And it connects these two ideas, peace and keeping God's law. Would the world look different if everybody was like this? If everybody kept these this law of God, I, I think it would be a lot different. I think it would, it would be a lot more peaceful if these laws were kept. Matthew 24, 12, Jesus talking about the end of time says, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. 
Paul said in the last times that perilous times would come. And, and I think we see that in our world today. We see perilous times. Maybe in our own backyard, we're not feeling that perilousness. Um, but uh, just think about it. When I was a kid, I would say to my mom, hey, I'm going to my friend's house. She'd say, okay, where are you going to be going? I don't know, maybe to the woods, maybe out to the creek. Okay, have fun, come back by supper. Do we do that today? Not so much. Nowadays, it's like, do you have your cell phone with you? Make sure I can reach you. You know, we put the GPS tracker on there so that, that we can track their movements. And, and then the, there's the, the, the little app that allows you to record everything they say. Do you have one of those on your children's phone? Okay, so maybe that's not, it, not the case. But, um, but we'd like that, right? We, we'd love to know that. But if they go down the, the street, maybe four doors, we're there at the sidewalk looking and making sure they get there safely. And we're worried, what, what kind of influence will those friends have on my child? And, and what kind of, um, how safe are their relatives, their parents, for my kid? All these questions are going on. It's not a peaceful place to live. In Revelation 12, 12, the Bible says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he, he has a short time. This is that great controversy I was talking about. The devil has a period of time, and every day that we live, he has less time, and he knows it. He sees the signs. He's watching for Jesus' return, probably more than we are. And, and he definitely has an agenda, and he's going to take every moment he has to cause as much problems as he can. In Revelation, John writes about a power, a beast. And, and then um, Paul, he describes this power, uh, which John says is um, given authority and power by the dragon or Satan. Paul describes this power as the man of sin. And of course, we, we read that sin is lawlessness, right? The, the lack of law. And then Daniel, he wrote about the same power, and it's, he said that it would think to change times and law. So according to the Bible, a hallmark of earth's last days is the lack of law, and as a result, the lack of peace. How do you protect in a world that's in moral decline, in a world that's not safe? How do we find peace? How do we protect our children? How do we relate? Well, let's go back to this passage, Revelation 14, 6 and 7. And I know we've covered it like three or four times, but, but first we talked about it from the law perspective, or from the uh, judgment perspective, and, and then another time we talked about it from a, a little bit different perspective. So tonight we're going to talk about it from this, this other aspect of the law. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. This is the, this is the core of the message he was going to preach to all who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And then in verse 12, it's that, that phrase, here is the patience of the saints, here are they who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. So this last day message, this everlasting gospel is tied in with commandment keeping with the law and ultimately with peace. 
Well, let's look at these commandments. And, and you tell me, it, do these make sense? Are they good for our world? Are they good for our society? What do you think? We'll, we'll read them real quick. You shall have no other gods before me. I think that makes sense. Of course, if you're an atheist, then we can just throw the whole law out altogether because if there is no God, then having other gods before him doesn't make any sense. Neither does the second one that says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. As a Christian, it makes sense because I believe that God does exist. And, and so anything that would um, undermine my understanding of God and, and His character would be, that would diminish who I th- what I think of Him would be a bad thing to worship. Uh, why would I worship gold and wood and stone when I could worship the God who created all of that? Besides, God created me in His image. I am in the image of God which means that God intended me to be the, the uh, shining light of His glory in the world. When people look at me, they should glorify God in heaven, and they should worship God in heaven. Not, not that we should be idols, that's not my point. But God designed us to be in His image. We shouldn't use the things He created for our benefit and for us to use to bless the earth with. We shouldn't take those created things and worship them. Now, of course, if you're an atheist, you throw that out as well because God doesn't exist. Now, then the, the command, commandment three says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Also, don't diminish God. Don't, don't uh, say that He's less than He is. Don't trifle with His, uh, with his name or with his, um, w- with his gift of calling you His child because really that's the big idea here. Don't take on God's name, Christian lightly. That's, that's the big idea. And of course, if you're an atheist, again, you'd throw that out. And commandment four says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This is God's designed time. He wants time with us, and He wants us to give time, uh, spend, take time for Him. Matthew twenty two thirty seven says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And with that phrase, Jesus sums up all of these first four commandments. I believe God exists, and I believe that those things make perfect sense, and it, and it aligns my life with the reality of this world. Now, if you're an atheist, you'd also throw out the rest of the Ten Commandments, because morality, apart from the law, doesn't make a lot of sense. It's, it's all dependent on hmm, how you see the world. So let's just assume that God does exist. I believe we've got some good evidence for it. Daniel 2 and our first discussion with Eric was all about, can we trust the Bible? Can we trust God? And the answer was, yes, we can. God can see the future. He can predict it beforehand, and we can demonstrate that that's the case. Let's trust that God does exist. So all these first four commandments, based on loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, this is the foundation of God's commands and something that would be worthwhile for all mankind to, to respect. Command five says, honor your father and your mother. Command six, you shall not murder. The, the seventh, you shall not commit adultery. The eighth, you shall not steal. The ninth, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then, of course, there's the tenth that we often forget, thou shalt not covet. Jesus, again, summarizes these last six commands, and He says, you shall Do you know what the next word is? Love your neighbor as yourself. The first four commands are all about loving God. The last six commands are all about loving our neighbor. The focus of God's law is love. 
Love God, love your neighbor. And I'd like, to, I'd like to suggest that this, it removes the law from our ability to check off, yep, I did that, yep, I did that, nope, didn't do that. We can't check off the law of God. It's a relationship. Love is a foundation of relationship. And so when I'm relating to God, it's not just about, uh, well, I, I haven't worshipped any idols today, so I'm good. The bigger question is, because that's kind of a boundary, that's the fence that you don't want to cross, but everything inside there, in, inside love, is, is part of that command. And so when God says, don't have any other gods before me, I'm jealous of your a relationship with you, then we get the opportunity to do everything that includes having God as, as our God, whatever that might include, worship and honor and glory and everything that we can do, praise, that's part of this loving God with all of my heart. And then when you look at love your neighbor as yourself, um, while we have some, some boundaries, a fence you might say, where if we go past that, then we are not loving. You know, if you lie to somebody, you lose their trust. And, and it, it's difficult to be in a relationship with somebody that you can't trust. If you uh, commit adultery, then you've not only broken the trust of your spouse, but you've also um, brought sin into the lives of, of somebody else. Those are experiences that harm and create, well, not peace, the lack of peace. But when we, when we look at that and we say, love your neighbor as yourself, what does that include? Well, there's lots and lots and lots that I can do to love. It's not just that I shouldn't commit adultery against my wife. It's that I should love my wife. And, and, uh, and so that's planning things that show her that love. And there's lots of ways that we can love other people. The next door neighbor, the, the person that you meet every day at work, or the, whoever it is that you might interact with, the person on the corner of the street that's asking for, for something, for a handout. The, the, the list is, well, it, it's, it never ends because... God identifies our neighbors as anybody that He puts in our way. It, it's kind of difficult to keep this law when you think of it in that regard. Has, has anybody kept this law perfectly? No hands have been raised, so that means that you're all sinners. When you compare to the law of God, you're all sinners, every, every one of you. I guess I have to include myself in that. I am a sinner too. And John, you're right, Jesus is the only one who's kept this law. No one can compare themselves with this law and come away and say, I'm good, I'm a good person, I'm, I'm pretty nice. Because the reality is that every one of us, when we face this law of love, have to say that we are more self-interested than we are loving towards others. We are more selfish than we are devoted and loving towards God. We are all sinners. And that means that we, in order to experience anything related to salvation, it's not going to be on us. In order to experience salvation, we need somebody outside of ourselves. James 2.12 says, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. This should cause us to take a second look 
and recognize that that law, that huge requirement, not the the ten little laws that seem to be the boundaries of, of our lives, but everything in the middle of that that requires loving God and loving others, that law is what we're going to be judged by. Let's live that way, right? That would be nice. That would be really nice if we could do that. How can we do that? How can we live by God's law? Hmm. Psalm 40, verse 8. This is the key. David, he says, I delight to do your will. I delight to do your will, O God, and your law is within my heart. That is the key. Not written on stone, however indelible that might be, it does not change my actions that God wrote His law on a piece of stone. What changes my actions is when He takes my heart and He makes it soft towards Him and He writes His law right there where I will know God's will, but I'll also want to do God's will. The desire will well up in me to say, I need to love that person. Like the, the, uh, the man who was walking on the road and he saw the Jew. He's a Samaritan. The other guy's a Jew. This would be the equivalent of... Um, I, I don't know, a Christian and a Muslim in, in some uh, uh, really hostile country right now. Um, and, and so the Samaritan walks by and sees the Jew beat up, and he puts him on his donkey, and he takes him to the inn, and he pays for the care of that, that person. He stays with him all night. He anoints him with, with uh, medicines and makes sure that he gets the healing that he needs. And even though there's conflict between those two people, the Samaritan does what a loving person would do. That's what God wants to do in us. He wants to, to create a desire to cross those boundaries, a desire to show love even to those people that don't seem lovable. Hebrews 8.10 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, says the Lord. And, and this is His, this is his like, promise. A covenant is, is like a marriage. A covenant is something that, that you make um, in, in, uh, you put your signature on it and you have witnesses and there is consequences if you don't keep it. That's a covenant. And God's saying, I'm making a covenant with you and here's my covenant. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. But what about those people that don't really, I mean, they want to do God's will kind of, but they just keep messing up. What about that? Romans 7, Paul talks about this. He says, for I, what I want to do, that I don't do, and what I don't want to do, what I hate, that I do. Oh, that's a frustrating experience. But as God writes His law in our hearts, He changes that. And we, as according to Paul, we begin to live by the Spirit, not by our own pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, not by our own grit and, and determination, but by the Spirit. When we live with God's Spirit, then God works out His will in our lives. Matthew 5, 17 says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law. I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Jesus did not come to take away the law of God. I mean, if he did, then he would have taken out away the law that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That doesn't make sense. He would have taken away the law that says, love your neighbor as yourself. That doesn't make sense. 
No, Jesus did not come to take away the law. He came to change our hearts. God's law, it does several things in our experience. First of all, when we look at God's law, we understand what sin is. And we say, I, I get it. That wasn't very nice. I shouldn't do that. That hurts people. That hurts God. And it also, it also as we look at it, shows us what God is like. Because when we see how God relates to people, this love, then we start to understand something deeper about Him than maybe we understood before. Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. We get to know what sin is by the law, but we're not justified by it. And Romans 4.15 adds, For where there is no law, there is no transgression. If God were to take away the law, what would that look like? Well, in Montana, they took away the speed limit for a while on some of the freeways. And, uh, and so in, in Montana, if you were at this time, um, you could drive down the road as long as you were driving at a reasonable speed according to the conditions at the time, then there was no speed limit. 90 miles an hour would be, would be just fine on the Montana freeway. Don't do that in Washington, but, but there it would have been fine. If, if you were doing that 90 miles an hour, you would not be under the law because it, it wouldn't, there wouldn't be a law to be under, right? So if there's no law, there's no sin. So the law shows us what sin is. And 1 John 3, 4 says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Another way that the King James translates it is that sin is the transgression of the law, the breaking of the law. Now, a good question to ask is, which law? Which law? Well, there's a couple in, in the Bible. There's actually three. One of them is civil laws. And so, for example, the one I really enjoy well, I guess this is kind of a health law, but it was something for the, for the, the, the nation. He said, don't um, use the bathroom in the camp. He said, go outside and, and dig a hole and bury it. He, he was just establishing some good rules for a group of people that were living together, right? Um, he had a latrine system. Uh, but, but there's some other laws. There are these ceremonial laws. And the ceremonial laws were Moses' law. Uh, and I just want to show you a quick comparison. So God's law, this, the Ten Commandments or the moral law, um, it was written by God. God put it on ten com the Ten Commandments on, on two tablets of stone. It was also um, put inside the Ark of the Covenant. And so this is God's law written by Him on, on stone inside the Ark. Moses, he wrote down what God had, had given him about the ceremonies, and he put it um, on a, a book, kind of parchment or whatever. And then he put it in a pouch that he made on the side of the ark. Does this have the same, um, the same significance? Are they in the same category? No, they're, they're different pieces of God's communication to them. And if you look at Colossians 2, um, Paul gives us some understanding of what this is all about. And he says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And, and just to add to this, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. 
but the substance is of Christ. Which law was nailed to this cross? Which um, handwriting of ordinances that was against us? Well, I have to tell you, there are, there are a couple things I think this talks about. And the first is the handwriting of ordinances being the record of your sin. It was nailed to the cross. Jesus, He, he took your sin and He paid your penalty. He nailed it to the cross. But there's also this other aspect that Paul talks about, these ceremonies and, and uh, the, the, the food offerings and the drink offerings and, and the festivals and the new moons and the Sabbaths that are, as he puts it, a shadow of things to come. So what is this idea, this shadow? What does it mean that it's a shadow? Well, I'll give you an example. The Passover, when the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt, God was bringing them out. He had ten plagues, and the first one was um, blood and all the water, and the second one was uh, flies, or I, I don't remember the, all the order, but it goes through, there's darkness, and then finally the tenth plague, and God was going to kill the firstborn of everybody who didn't have the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their house. And, and when, when you look at that, you, look, you have to, to realize when you, you look forward to Jesus and John is saying, behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. You see, the Passover was not the end. It wasn't the ultimate expression of God's deliverance. The Passover and the blood on the doorposts was looking forward to Jesus and our experience with Christ's blood on our heart, applied there not by um, some, some branches like they were told to do with the blood of the goats, but applied by faith, the hand of faith applying Jesus' blood to our own hearts. And when, when God looks at the doorposts of our heart, He sees the blood of Jesus there and He says, saved, and He passes over. Judgment is made in favor of us when that happens. So, so the Passover was a shadow. It was, it was kind of like what really happens but it, but it wasn't nearly as awesome. It wasn't nearly as amazing. It was a shadow. It's like when you walk outside and it's, uh, you know, that evening, uh, the sun is shining and the long shadows happen and you walk and you, you can see your shadow walking with you. But your shadow doesn't have color. It's, it's, it's uh, kind of bland and it, it can't walk by itself, right? It's, it's not alive. That's the difference. All these ceremonies they're bland in comparison to what Jesus did when He fulfilled them on the cross. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We're the rebels, the sinners, the ones that, that don't keep God's law, the ones that don't do the thing God intended for us to do, and so we live without peace. And, and while we can't solve all the problems of all the governments around the world, we can have peace in our hearts. And Jesus promises that His life is what He gave so that we can have peace. Isaiah wrote, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. We recognize that we're sinners. We believe that Jesus died to save us. We confess our sins and we believe that salvation is our gift. That's the blood applied to our hearts. And it's not because we are, um, 
working our way towards salvation. We believe it simply because God said it. It's not because of our goodness that we believe it. It's not because of our capacity or capability or, or whatever you want to call it. It's, it's simply because God said it. And because God said it, we can believe it. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, some of you are worried that this uh, wonderful message of grace means that the law doesn't matter anymore. But uh, just let me tell you a story. A young man was driving down a country road late at night, and he saw the blue lights behind him. He pulled over, and the officer came to his door, and the young man uh, said, uh, or, or the officer says to the young man, uh, do you know how fast you were going? And the young man sir, said, sir, uh, no, I, I don't. I, I, he said, are you... Uh, are you racing to get somewhere? Are you late for something? And, and the young man said, uh, no, no, I'm not late. Uh, did you see that sign? No, I, I didn't. Um, he'd only been on the road a couple times, and so he didn't know this, the, uh, the sign was there. And so he was being honest, and he made sure that dome light was on and that his, you know, his driver's license was out and his hands were on his steering wheel. He was doing all the right things. And uh, so the police officer took his, his uh, information, went back to the car, and a few minutes later, came back, and he handed him a piece of paper. And on the top of that piece of paper, it said, courtesy notice, driving less than five miles per hour over the speed limit. And the man said, don't let me catch you driving fast here again. And that young man said, I won't. And he meant it. Now, some people think that uh, that, that means that we're, we're, you know, like, when, um, when you're forgiven, you're no longer under the law. And, and I would agree with that. When you're forgiven, you are no longer under the law. Because to be under the law means to be under the consequences of breaking the law. That young man, as he raced down the road, going too fast, and, and the police lights came behind him, he was under the law, right? He was under the consequences of the law, and, and he really needed to be um, repentant. When he pulled over and, uh, and he ends up getting a courtesy notice instead of a ticket, he was then under grace, right? No longer under condemnation by the law. He was under grace. Now, does that mean that that young man should then um, pop the clutch, right? Spin out um, and, and, and do donuts and race down the road. Is that, is that how he should relate to this? No, no. Being under grace does not give you liberty to break the law. In fact, being under grace almost gives you more of an obligation to the law. Now, this is, this is uh, what happens when you just about got a ticket. You make sure that seatbelt is buckled, right? You adjust your mirrors, you turn on your blinker, you slowly move back out into traffic, and you, and you go like 33 miles an hour down the road, hoping the policeman passes you quickly or turns around and goes the other way, right? Any, am I the only one? No. Okay. When you're under grace, it changes how you relate to life. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, God, He's putting His commandments in our heart. All we have to do is say yes to Jesus. I want you as part of my life. And, and He'll start to change who we are. He'll put His commandments into our hearts. Jesus was on a boat with some men, his disciples, and they were not happy. They did not have peace. There was a tumultuous storm all around them. And uh, 
And they said this one little phrase that changed their lives. They were about to die. That at least they felt like they were about to die. And they said one little thing. Do you remember what it was? Lord, save us. We perish. Is that true of you tonight? Do you recognize that you're in a situation where without God you will perish? All you need to say is, Lord, save me. I perish. And Jesus, he stood up in the boat and with the confidence of God said, Peace, be still. And the storm was at an end. And the Bible says, and immediately they were on the other side. I'm sure there's a whole sermon in that. We won't go into it. But I, I think it's, it's worthwhile for us to think about that story and recognize that when we say, Lord, save us, we perish, that He immediately brings peace into our lives. He is our peace. And He does. He transforms our hearts, and He, he teaches us to be loving and to be kind. He, he, well, in fact, He says that I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to me. It's by, by, by recognizing Jesus and looking at Him that we even start to desire to love God.